Hi, friends. Before we jump into today's story, I just want to give you a quick update about some bonus content that I totally forgot to mention in last week's episode. So we had this episode last week about this Tulsa race massacre. And if you listen to it, you may remember that I mentioned really briefly that enslaved Black people actually walked alongside Native people on the Trail of Tears. And when I found this out, this was something that really surprised me. It left me with tons of questions. And so I decided that I wanted to dig deeper and share some of what I learned with you all. So I actually had a conversation about what I learned with my True Crime co-producer, Olivia, and we posted our conversation up on Patreon. So we talk a little bit about the history. Um, Olivia asked some questions and, you know, it's open to conversation. Um, you actually can post comments on there, everything. So if you want to hear that, if you want to join in on that conversation, you can actually sign up for Patreon for as little as $5 a month. And the benefit is in addition to getting this awesome bonus content, you actually directly supporting truer crime. And so to sign up, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash truer crime pod. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So patreon.com slash truer crime pod. Then you'll select your membership tier and you can check out and your membership will renew every month. So you're going to have uninterrupted access to all of this awesome bonus content, and you're going to help us continue making episodes for months and hopefully years to come. I also wanted to give you a quick little reminder that we are going to take a break after episode 10 to create season two. And so as we're planning episodes for our next season, I wanted to let you know that it's really, really helpful for us when you give us feedback on what kinds of stories you like hearing. I know a lot of you have been writing reviews, messaging us, sharing about the show on social media, which side note, if you don't know already, you can follow us at True Crime Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But also, you know, we have a recommend an episode form on our website. And our website is truecrimepodcast.com. And this form is honestly a great way to let us know what stories you like, but also what stories you want us to talk about. What stories do you want us to cover? And then, of course, social media is awesome for that as well. But finally, as I wrap up, I, of course, want to give some content warnings. So please be aware. Today's story contains references to anti-Black racism, homophobia, and incarceration. If I asked you to recall the first time you really understood what race you were, would the answer come to mind quickly? It does for me. I was in kindergarten. I don't remember much, if anything at all, about this day other than this one particular moment. I walked up to a group of girls during recess and asked if I could play with them. One of them turned to me and scowled. You can't play with us. I don't play with black people, she said. I walked away confused but stinging with rejection. I didn't really understand racism, but I understood that black was bad. It was the first in a long series of lessons I'd receive in childhood about what was good, what was desirable, and what wasn't. And blackness wasn't the only thing that made my family different. You see, my mom, who had me at the help of artificial insemination, yay modern science, was gay. And this being the 1990s and early 2000s meant that our family was living a morally questionable lifestyle. Or so said the majority of Americans at the time. Tell them she's my sister, my mom said. It was an excuse she'd give me to avoid bullying from kids who'd see our family out and about. One particular day in fourth grade, I worked up the courage to tell my best friend the truth. You know that lady you saw my mom with the other day? She's not my mom's sister. She's actually my mom's partner. I thought she took it well. That is, until she was yelling at me across the playground that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. 
She then made it a point to tell everyone in our class about Celicia's gay moms who are going to hell. For fifth grade, my mom moved me to a new school. I was a kid, but I got it. Being black was wrong, being gay was wrong, and if you were both, well, that's just especially wrong. The lessons would continue. About gender, about money, about disability. Sometimes I was advantaged by this invisible rule book, and sometimes I wasn't. When I learned the word intersectionality, it resonated deeply. Intersectionality is a term coined by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe how Black women experience discrimination and oppression. Crenshaw's work points out that Black women face sexism much like white women, but at the same time, Black women experience racism, as do Black men. And then there's oppression that happens at the intersection of Sexism Street and Racist Anti-Black Boulevard. That's the unique oppression faced by Black women. As Crenshaw writes, if an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions, and sometimes from all of them. That's intersectionality. And the idea holds for any number of different identities, for different ways that discrimination and violence hit oppressed folks from several sides at once, creating a unique experience for those holding more than one oppressed identity. Growing up as a Black woman, raised by gay Black women, our experiences as a family were complex. And we always seemed to be dodging hate from some direction or another. I mean, some folks in my own family felt like being gay was a choice. And I noticed how the pride celebrations we go to every June always felt so white. I remember one summer at Minneapolis Pride, and this one wasn't actually too long ago, a group of Black Lives Matter protesters had marched the street, delaying the parade. A group of white folks in front of me started complaining loudly. Seriously? Couldn't they bring that somewhere else? Interesting, right? They seemed to suddenly forget, or maybe they never chose to learn, that had it not been for Black trans women, none of us would be at Pride at all. And I don't know, maybe they just didn't care. But really, the point is this. When you sit at the intersection of multiple oppressed identities, you're open to attacks from all directions. So, as a true crime podcaster, I naturally wonder about all the connections to cops, courts, and the law. I wonder, in what ways can identity be coded as criminal? Unsurprisingly, I found that the cases we could discuss are innumerable. But today, we'll examine one. Because this is the story of Michael Johnson. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to True Crime. On February 13th of 2013, Dylan King Lemons got the kind of bad news you hope to never get. According to police reports obtained by BuzzFeed via journalist Stephen Thrasher, it had all begun unfolding just a few days earlier when Dylan, a 20-year-old Missouri college student, started feeling sick. It began with severe stomach pains that wouldn't go away. And then Dylan noticed a growth on his stomach. He wasn't sure what any of these symptoms meant, and he was starting to get worried. At this point, his mom took him to the hospital where he'd end up spending several days as his doctor ran all sorts of tests, 
trying to figure out what was wrong, what all the symptoms were pointing to. And when the results came back, everything started coming together. Dylan had tested positive for gonorrhea and for HIV. In case you're unfamiliar, the CDC says that HIV is a virus which attacks your immune system, one which, as of now, has no cure, is a lifelong condition. And without proper treatment, the virus can progress to HIV stage 3, otherwise known as AIDS. And while an HIV diagnosis used to be considered terminal, things have changed a lot in the decades since scientists first learned about the virus. What was once considered a death sentence is now far from it for folks with access to proper lifelong treatment. But still, managing HIV can be extremely difficult, and the risks aren't none. So for Dylan and his family, the HIV diagnosis was understandably upsetting. And it also brought with it a lot of questions. How long had he been sick? And who had he gotten HIV from? And while the answers to these questions certainly weren't cut and dry, Dylan's doctor was able to provide a little clarity. He told Dylan that he was confident that given his current condition, he likely contracted the virus sometime in the last three to nine months. For Dylan, who would later say he'd been intimate with six people in his life, that meant the list of folks who could have infected him was narrowed to two people. But still, he wasn't positive about who that person was. According to the police report I mentioned earlier, Dylan was put in contact with Frank Lydon of the Missouri Department of Health. Lydon's job as an epidemiology specialist was similar to contract tracing measures you'd be familiar with from COVID-19. Lydon would get in contact with all of Dylan's previous partners in order to obtain their HIV test results. When he contacted Dylan later, he'd be able to confirm that five of his six previous sexual partners had tested negative for HIV. And when I read this, I immediately got kind of uneasy. I thought, like, aren't health records private information? I couldn't be sure if Lydon had been given explicit permission to share these individuals' results, but it was a piece of information that sent my antennas up right away. But as it turned out, there was one person that Lydon wouldn't speak about. He'd tell Dylan that he couldn't share this person's test results, but he would advise Dylan to contact the police, giving him two Missouri legal statutes as reference. And if you're completely baffled at this point, because why on earth would Dylan need to contact the police? You're absolutely not alone. It seemed like a shocking turn of events. Dylan having HIV was devastating, absolutely, but what were the police going to do about it? Well, as it would turn out, quite a lot. Because this was Missouri. What Leiden had been insinuating, well, it immediately came into focus. Missouri State Statute 191-677 was clear. If you know you have HIV and you don't explicitly tell everyone you may expose, well, then you've committed a felony. And I say that in present tense because it still is. This law is on the books in Missouri right now. But apparently, this is far from unique. According to reporter Emily Rueb of the New York Times, quote, Missouri is one of 34 states with laws that make it a crime to expose another person to HIV without disclosure or add additional penalties for people with the virus who are convicted of other offenses, like sex work. And given that Dylan King Lemons claimed that none of his partners had disclosed to him that they were HIV positive, that meant that Dylan, in the eyes of the law, was possibly a crime victim. And now knowing that five of his six previous sexual partners were negative for HIV, that left only one potential. 
a fellow student at Lindenwood University, Michael Johnson, or as those who connected with him on social media knew him, Tiger Mandingo. But it wasn't just his screen name that made him stick out. Michael, a black, dark-skinned, openly gay wrestler who attended Lindenwood on a sports scholarship, was pretty much an outlier in every sense. St. Charles, Missouri, where Dylan and Michael lived and went to school, was a small Midwestern town with a Black population of under 2%, according to the most recent census. And unsurprisingly, it wasn't the kind of place that could be lauded for its progressive attitude. One Lindenwood wrestler would tell journalist Stephen Thrasher that before Michael, no one on the team had, quote, really interacted with a gay person. And after they discovered that Michael was gay, none of them were particularly eager to wrestle with him. If they would have been upset about needing to shower in the same locker room as Michael, they'd never know for sure. The wrestler would tell Thrasher that he, quote, never showered with us, and he was the only black guy on the team, so if he showered, everyone would have noticed. Like I said, St. Charles was far from a progressive haven. But Dylan and Michael hadn't met on the wrestling team. According to police reports, they met at a party, sometime in December or January and the two ultimately developed a sexual relationship that lasted several weeks, one which fizzled out by late February, not long after Dylan had been diagnosed with HIV. And now Dylan was sure that it was Michael who was responsible. In May of 2013, Dylan filed a report with police. He'd tell them that he believed Michael had knowingly exposed him to HIV and that he was, quote, possibly exposing others as well. And at this point... I'm feeling pretty shocked. And look, I think it's important for us all to remember that HIV is a serious condition, one that has claimed the lives of so many people in the U.S. and across the world. But that said, the criminalization of HIV, to me, is pretty obviously political. But to fully understand why that is, it's important to understand the political history of HIV itself. According to writer Tim Fitzsimmons, HIV would first make its way to the United States in the late 1970s. And when it arrived, it disproportionately spread through communities of gay men. And while a variety of factors can explain why, what scientists now know is that anal sex has an HIV transmission rate which is 18 times higher than vaginal sex. And while folks of all genders and sexualities participate in anal sex, Researchers believe that this is one of the major initial causes for the spread of the virus within the gay community. And HIV's arrival to the States was coming on the heels of a massive movement for LGBTQ rights, spurred by the Stonewall Riots of 1969. But where there's progress, there is almost always backlash. And that would certainly be the case here, when folks like Anita Bryant and Reverend Jerry Falwell became national anti-gay figures— and an extremely conservative Ronald Reagan secured the presidency. The 80s would bring a reversal of many of the gains won in the 70s, and HIV at this point became known in many circles as the gay plague. So put simply, the government, they just didn't really care. Fitzsimmons would write for NBC that, quote, In 1984, Health and Human Services Secretary Margaret Heckler announced the discovery of the virus that caused AIDS and the development of an AIDS test and forecast that a vaccine would be available by 1986. But no vaccine ever came. What came instead were laws criminalizing the transmission of HIV. Lawmakers claimed that these laws would protect the public from the deadly virus. But 
Maybe the biggest difference between then and now is the leaps and bounds of progress that have been made in the treatment of HIV. An illness which just a few decades ago was considered for many a death sentence is now considered chronic but manageable. In fact, according to CDC, with proper treatment, folks can expect to live long and healthy lives. And with such a major shift in prognosis, many HIV advocates feel that laws criminalizing HIV, like the one Michael was accused of violating, do more to stigmatize than prevent. And really, if the purpose of these laws is to protect the public, it's important to consider that the large majority of folks who pass on HIV are completely unaware that they're even HIV positive in the first place. According to the CDC, this is actually the case for 92% of all new infections. It's a reality which seems to point to education, removing stigma, and promoting regular STD testing as more responsive ways to reduce the prevalence of HIV. But maybe there's other incentives to keep these laws in place. Rod McCollum writes for The Nation that Black folks who comprise 13% of the U.S. population make up 44% of all new HIV infections. And according to CDC projections, if trends continue half of all gay Black men will be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime. And the connection between race and HIV, it's not new. Kenneth Pass, an activist and public health graduate student, would tell The Nation that, quote, HIV criminalization is part of the larger story around how the prison industrial complex incarcerates Black people. And McCollum writes that history backs this up pointing to the case of Nushan Williams, an HIV-positive Black man accused of having sex with multiple partners whose story led to the passage of a law in New York, which would mandate that medical professionals report the names of everyone with an HIV-positive test result. But as Stephanie Pappas would write for the American Psychological Association, none of these laws actually do what they're intended to do, which is to reduce the transmission of HIV. And perhaps the police in this case knew that. Because after Dylan filed his initial report against Michael, it would be another three months before they followed up. And this, to me, was pretty outrageous. To be honest, the fact that Michael could be charged with a felony in the first place was pretty outrageous. But if this law was actually in place to protect the community, if folks charged with these felonies are such a danger to public health, do the police not think it pertinent to take action sooner? To me, three months just seemed like an incredibly long time to follow up on a crime so dangerous that it's punishable by up to 30 years in prison per count. It seemed to be one of the many instances where the subtext accidentally became text. These laws were about criminalization and punishment, not about health and safety. But in September of 2013, the police talked to Dylan again, confirming his story and gathering more details. At one point, the officer asked Dylan what he'd like the end result of the investigation to be. Understandably, Dylan responded, saying, to not be HIV positive. But, he continued, since that wasn't possible, he'd like for no one else to be infected. And yes, he'd say, when asked, he'd like to move forward with prosecution. For me, it was such a perfect example of what we so often see in criminal legal cases. Dylan wanted something that the police couldn't provide him, to not have HIV. Secondarily, he wanted something that the police also couldn't secure, for no one else to be infected. And ultimately, he'd say he wanted the only other option offered to him, prosecution. This the police could help with. I wondered, as I often do, about what things could look like if we were even the slightest bit more imaginative. 
How could we support folks dealing with hard things in a way that reaffirms all of our humanity, that heals and protects first? But pursuing criminal charges would be what police could offer, so that's what they'd do. And they could do it because they'd found evidence that Michael had known he was HIV positive prior to his relationship with Dylan. According to Stephen Thrasher, writing for BuzzFeed, on January 7th of 2013, Michael had signed a Missouri disclosure form acknowledging that he was aware of his HIV diagnosis. That would be a month prior to the date that Dylan was diagnosed with HIV. And it would mean that if a jury could be convinced that Michael hadn't informed Dylan of his HIV status, Michael would be facing prison time. Police would eventually interview Michael in early October. And according to police records, Michael would say that yes, he was aware that he was HIV positive. And yes, he did have unprotected sex with Dylan in January. But he'd say he had told Dylan he was HIV positive. But clearly, Michael's word wouldn't be sufficient for police as they'd arrest him just a few days later. Straight out of class. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the same day Michael was arrested, he'd also be expelled from Lindenwood. Apparently, guilt or innocence didn't mean much to the university. Both the school and police would release statements. Lindenwood through a school-wide email and the police through the media. They'd release Michael's full name and they'd say he'd been exposing his sexual partners to HIV. Both would urge anyone who had had intimate contact with Michael to get tested. The police would also ask that those who had intimate contact with Michael contact them. It all turned my stomach. Michael Johnson hadn't even been convicted yet. And here was his personal medical information, details of his sex life, and criminal accusations being spread across the entirety of his community. And all of this? Just as recently as 2013. I couldn't help but think about how the person who Michael was had been reduced to a few things he may have done was a kind of erasure. Michael, who was described by those who knew him as warm and popular, had a big, bright smile, according to Stephen Thrasher. He'd struggled with a learning disability but excelled at athletics, and he and his family knew he had a bright future ahead of him. His high school wrestling coach would tell Thrasher that he'd never had a more committed wrestler and that it was his friendliness, not just his work ethic, that made him a dream student. But... Now all of that and everything else, all of the details that made Michael who he was, they were all invisible to the folks that only saw him as a scary black guy whose mugshot was in the news. And unfortunately, the nightmare was really just getting started. He'd ultimately end up getting charged with six felonies. And it's important to understand that these laws, they're complex. They vary state by state, and even in Missouri, the details of exactly what class of felony you're charged with depends on exactly how the quote-unquote exposure occurred and whether or not the exposed person actually contracted HIV. But to put it most simply, Michael would be charged with one count of HIV transmission, the most serious accusation, the one by Dylan King-Lemons, alongside an additional five counts of exposure from other people who'd come forward saying they had been intimate with Michael but had not been diagnosed with HIV. Between all of these stacked charges, Michael was looking down the barrel of life in prison, all for allegedly not disclosing his HIV status to partners. And once Michael was arrested in October of 2013, that's where he'd stay. According to Stephen Thrasher, Michael didn't have the funds to make bail. And when he was offered a plea deal by prosecutors, he refused to take it. Michael would tell Thrasher that he fundamentally believed that the criminal justice system worked 
and that he would be found innocent of the charges. Michael's mom would tell Thrasher that she believed it was Michael's decision here, his choice to turn down the plea deal, that ultimately landed him in solitary confinement, a way to punish him for his choice. Others believed Michael was confined because he was HIV positive. But either way, Michael would spend months locked up, waiting for trial in near-complete isolation, forced to remain in his cell 23 hours a day. He wasn't even allowed to attend church services. Thrasher reported that Michael was never given a reason for his confinement. And when BuzzFeed reached out to St. Charles Department of Corrections for comment, they were told they couldn't share that sort of information, quote, to protect an inmate's rights and privacy. It was awfully ironic that the state all of a sudden seemed concerned with Michael's privacy when his personal medical information had already been blasted across town. It seemed Michael really only had privacy on an as-convenient basis. But despite so much working against Michael, he did have the support of some folks in the community. Thrasher noted that HIV experts and faith leaders would write a letter to the prosecutor on Michael's case, asking what alternatives to prosecution existed. They believed that there must have been a better solution to protecting the public than locking someone up. And they weren't the only ones taking issue with the case against Michael. Rod McCollum, writing for The Nation, would say that, quote, a group of Black gay men, thought leaders, academics, HIV policy experts, writers, and more, would publish an open letter to Michael Johnson that was published in Muse magazine. They'd write that, quote, HIV criminalization laws stigmatize people living with HIV. They push people living with HIV further and further away from HIV treatment and care and make HIV prevention efforts more difficult. As Black gay men, we are deeply impacted by HIV, and these laws harm us and damage our relationships and communities. They say to Michael directly, For you, your accusers saw your Black and masculine body as a site of ultimate sexual pleasure until they had to deal with you as a whole person. At that moment, you became a problem, and you were disposable to them. We care about you. Your life matters. HIV is not a crime, and you should not be in prison. End quote. But despite all of these efforts, the prosecution would not relent. They would take Michael Johnson to trial. By the time that the trial began in spring of 2015, Michael Johnson had already been locked in prison for a year and a half. So much for the right to a speedy trial, I guess. Jury selection started in May of 2015. And the more I learned about jury selection, the more I realized that it's less fair and objective than it is strategic and calculated. Each side has the opportunity to ask questions and to strike jurors. And, you know, depending on how you play that game, you could end up with a jury that's really good for you or really not good for you. And that's because real objectivity, it doesn't exist. It's just a fact that everyone comes in with biases influenced by their identity and ideology and experience. And unfortunately for Michael, St. Charles is both very white and very conservative. So Michael, who is being represented by public defender Heather Donovan, never really stood a chance. According to journalist Stephen Thrasher, out of the 51 potential jurors, only one was non-white. One. Most of the people with a shot of deciding Michael's fate were over 50 years old. And all of them identified as straight. All of them. And all would deny having HIV. And if they weren't demographically diverse, they certainly weren't ideologically diverse either. 
half would say they believe being gay was a choice, and only 33% would say that being gay was not a sin. When all was said and done, the jury would be made up of seven white women, four white men, and one black woman. Incredible. A jury of Michael's peers had not even one black man, and certainly no gay black men. If you or I had been sitting in the courtroom for Michael Johnson's trial, we may have noticed right away the differences in how each side presented themselves. According to Stephen Thrasher, who reviewed the court reporter's notes for this case, the prosecutor was a highly experienced lawyer named Philip Grenway. Confidence and persuasion seemed to beam from him. Grenway was a dynamic storyteller capable of truly captivating the jury. By contrast, Michael's defense attorney, Heather Donovan, was younger, likely newer to the field. She was a public defender and so probably underpaid and overworked. She'd rarely make eye contact and she'd often stumble while speaking. Grenway had a large team to support him and Donovan didn't. As I read, it was hard to imagine a defendant overcoming these disparities, especially a defendant who is gay and black. According to Thrasher's reporting, racist stereotyping and fetishizing would plague the trial from the start. Prosecutors described Michael's penis in graphic detail, often calling it large or claiming that he told his accusers that they, quote, didn't make condoms in his size. The prosecution actually brought sex tapes, consensually made sex tapes, into the proceedings as evidence, handing out screenshots from the videos to the jury, even though those images added little to the factual case they were making. In all, six accusers would testify against Michael, including Dylan King's Lemon. They'd all say the sex was consensual and that Michael had told them he was STD-free. Thrash would write that at times the accusers would contradict themselves. Dylan, for example, would testify that he knew Michael had to be the one to give him HIV because he hadn't had sex with anyone else in the 11 months before he'd been diagnosed. It was a statement that didn't match up to what he'd told the police a few years prior, that there had been at least two individuals he had had a sexual relationship with in that time. Dylan would also say that due to his diagnosis, He was pushed into tens of thousands of dollars of medical debt that he couldn't pay back. The debt was so overwhelming, he said, that he had to file for bankruptcy. An understandably devastating turn of events, except for the fact that Stephen Thrasher and BuzzFeed would be unable to find any record that Dylan had ever filed for bankruptcy. But Heather Donovan wouldn't point any of this out in her cross-examination. BuzzFeed would also report that another of Michael's accusers, a college exchange student, would say on the stand that, quote, He found Johnson unusual because he was black, and there were only white people in his home country. Over the course of his trial, many medical professionals would testify, but Heather Donovan would never point to the lack of evidence showing that Dylan's viral strain matched Michael's. Evidence that you'd think would be necessary for the state's argument that it was Michael and not someone else who had infected Dylan. One of the prosecution's medical experts would call HIV a terminal illness, despite the fact that it's not. The defense expert witnesses would vehemently disagree, but I wonder if the damage had already been done. According to Thrasher, in his closing argument, quote, Grenway warned the jurors that they needed to keep the public safe from Johnson, who roamed the world with a calling card of HIV with a tint of gonorrhea mixed in, by convicting him and locking him away forever. The jury would deliberate for only two hours before returning their verdict they'd find Michael Johnson not guilty of one of the five transmission charges, but guilty of all the rest. And on the most serious charge, 
the one that accused him of transmitting HIV to Dylan King's lemon, they'd find him guilty as well. Michael Johnson, only in his 20s, was facing life in prison. Michael's sentence would be determined in a completely separate hearing. The prosecutor would have yet another opportunity to present evidence and elicit testimony, this time with the purpose of making sure Michael got the harshest sentence possible. BuzzFeed's trial coverage would report that the prosecution basically told the jury, you know, now we get to talk about all these things that I couldn't bring up during the main trial. And what were these things? Well, they included an additional 32 consensually made sex tapes and mentions of people who Grenway claimed wanted to come forward but couldn't, such as one man with a wife who he said was afraid to come forward for fear of his wife finding out. Ultimately, it all went to the bigger picture the prosecution wanted to paint that Michael Johnson was a dangerous Black man exposing victim after victim with no regard for how his actions might impact others. It would all be solidified by the emotional appeal of Dylan King Lemon's mom, who, according to BuzzFeed, would say that her son's HIV diagnosis was a life sentence without parole. So why does Michael deserve any less? For the transmission charge, the jury would sentence Michael to 30 years. And for the other four exposure charges, 30 and a half. Perhaps mercifully, the judge would say that Michael could serve both sentences concurrently, meaning that he'd serve a total of 30 years instead of 60. It was a horrifying end result. Michael's sentence would be longer than pretty much any other crime you could commit in the state of Missouri, including second-degree murder, which, to put in perspective, is the same charge Derek Chauvin was convicted of for the murder of George Floyd. Even if it was all true, that Michael had, in fact, withheld his HIV status from his partners, it seemed like an unreasonably harsh sentence, and one that unfortunately couldn't reverse the pain felt by his accusers. According to Emily Rubb of the New York Times, Michael would spend another year in prison before, in 2016, he won an appeal. But before you get excited, the appeals court didn't rule that Michael was innocent or that the law was unfair, but instead that the prosecution had failed to make some of their evidence available to the defense in a timely manner. It was an error that they believed made Michael's original conviction invalid. But the appeals court decision, as exciting as it was, just meant a new trial. It didn't mean that Michael would walk free, and it didn't mean a reduced sentence. It just meant a redo. And that... Well, that was scary. Because Michael could go through the entire process all over again and just face the same exact result at the end of it all. Knowing that risk, when Michael was offered a 10-year plea deal nine months later, he took it. It was a deal that would cut his original 30 years down significantly, and he'd ultimately spend two more years in prison before finally he was granted parole in 2019. Six years after his arrest, and now Michael Johnson was finally out. Reading this, it was nice to know that Michael wasn't in prison anymore, that he finally had an opportunity to move forward, to live his life. But I also felt sad that the system refused to even do the bare minimum of recognizing the harm it had done. But Michael, he seemed focused on moving forward. When Stephen Thrasher asked how he felt about getting out, his answer was simple. I feel great.
Before we close out, I want to direct you to a few action items related to today's story. First, I want to direct you to support the Center for HIV Law and Policy, which challenges barriers to the rights and health of people affected by HIV through legal advocacy, high-impact policy initiatives, and creation of cross-issue partnerships, networks, and resources. And what's really cool about donating to the Center for HIV Law and Policy is that according to their website, more than 90% of every donation that they receive, it actually goes to supporting their advocacy programs on behalf of people living with HIV. So if you're interested in that, you can learn more and donate at HIVLawAndPolicy.org. And secondly, because it's Pride Month, I wanted to direct you to supporting another organization that's really amazing. This organization is called For the Girls, and it's a Black trans-led collective that curates parties to fundraise money to help Black transgender people pay their rent, pay for gender-affirming surgeries, and even pay for smaller co-pays for medicine and doctor visits, and of course, also for travel assistance. And while they had to suspend their parties due to COVID-19, they've still been collecting and distributing funds. In fact, as of February 8th of 2021, For the Girls distributed over $1 million to Black trans folks across the U.S. and worldwide. For the month of June, they're running a $500,000 Pride campaign and could use your support to reach their goal. You can learn more and donate at F-O-R-T-H-E-G-W-O-R-L-S dot party. Finally, I want to put special emphasis, of course, on Stephen Thrasher's incredible body of work for BuzzFeed, which was super important for creating today's episode. Thrasher actually closely followed this story for five years and reported on all of it. He's actually the reason we were able to access so many primary documents for this episode, including police reports, probable cause statements, and other materials directly related to the case. All of these documents, those are public domain, like anyone should be able to access them, but you actually can't easily access them without filing a Freedom of Information Act request. And those can take months to be fulfilled if they're even fulfilled at all. So I wanted to thank Stephen Thrasher for the hard work that he did and, you know, filing for those documents and for making them publicly available by linking them in all of his articles that he wrote. So as a small team without any traditional journalistic affiliation, being able to access those documents quickly and easily was such a huge help. And of course, as always, you can find a full list of our sources used in today's episode on our show notes, which can be found on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. 